The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture comes from Matthew 6, 5-15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But pray, pray, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up with empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father who knows that what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For, your, for if you forgive their other... If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, trespasses, they will never forgive you. Your Father will never forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Emmeline. Uh, my name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church, and I just want to uh, thank Stacy for, for having me and uh, asking me to come here today as he uh, continues on a few weeks sabbatical from, from preaching, and so uh, he's asked me to come here this week and next week, so you have me for two weeks in a row. And uh, again, I, I work at Christ Pres, and I, I serve all the campuses, and it's a great privilege to, uh, to get to come out to Music Row when I get the chance. So, uh, so again, thank you for having me. Uh, one of my kids, not so long ago, it was asked of him something unthinkable. In the mind of a child or a teenager, it is considered utter heresy. And what was it that was asked of him? Well, you see, he was in an, uh, an advanced placement class, and, and if he does well in that class, it means he gets college credit for it while, while he's still in high school. So it behooves him to do well in his final exam. So in effort to prepare him for the test, they offered to administer a practice test. We thought, his mother and I, that it would be a good idea for him to take this practice test. Now, in and of itself, taking a practice test is borderline unethical to the teenager. Tests are bad things. No one likes a test. So why in the world would you even think about taking a test that doesn't count? And I get that. But even he understood the benefit of taking a practice test because perhaps it gives you a clue uh, as to knowing what's on or what to expect on the real test. So it wasn't the fact that we were asking him to take a practice test that was uh, the problem. It was the fact that the practice test took place on a Saturday. And of course, it was going to require him to actually go to school to take this test on a Saturday. And to add insult to injury, the test was to commence in the morning. So we're asking to go to school on a Saturday morning. This, to my son, is nothing short of a crime against humanity. So when he learned of this plan, let me tell you, he begged. 
he pleaded, Father, let this cup pass from me. When I tell you he didn't want to go to school on Saturday, he really didn't want to go to school on Saturday for whatever the reason. And let me just say, I honestly believe in the days leading up to this practice test, he went through all five stages of grief. Five stages of grief, denial. Yes, he certainly was in denial. In fact, many times he just flat out told, I'm not going, I'm not going. Uh, anger, oh yes, he was very angry. Bargaining, like you have no idea. I even got the dad, I'll do anything line. Depression, certainly, he didn't say a word to me the entire way to taking the test. Acceptance, to tell you the truth, I'm not, even, I'm not even sure he ever got to acceptance. To this day, he still looks at us like we betrayed him. So four out of five, we'll say. Nevertheless, in spite of all the objection, begging, pleading, and whatnot, he went to school on Saturday and took the test. Now, the position we were in as parents, I, I took no pleasure in asking him to do something that he didn't want to do. In fact, over the course of the begging and pleading, several times I considered, well, maybe I should just let him off the hook. Maybe I should just not ask him to do this. I, I don't like seeing him angry, depressed, and all the other stages. So, so yeah, I almost caved in. And I mean, when your son tells you, Dad, I'll do anything, you listen, right? You, you want to take advantage. I could really take advantage of the position here. And, and truth be told, truth be told, if we're being honest, I dare say this is the way that many of us approach our prayer lives. How do we pray? Perhaps in moments of crisis? We enter into with a mindset that we're trying to convince God of something. And if we pray hard enough, if we bargain hard enough with him, he just might give in and change his mind and, and, and uh, give in to our persistent prayers and petitions. And, and some of you might already be thinking, are you saying we can't? We can't pray hard enough to change God's mind? And that's one of the questions we want to look at today and try and answer. You see, we just finished this sermon series on Elijah, and I hope you got a lot out of that. So this week, uh, they called it Pastor's Choice. And uh, at all the campuses, the preacher was allowed to pick the topic they wanted to preach on before the next sermon series on the Psalms. It's called Putting the Psalms to Work. So we're not just going to go through the, the, the book of Psalms. We're going to specifically look at a number of Psalms and explore the different genres in which they're written and then try to answer the question of how we use those Psalms in the context of prayer praying with and through the Psalms. So this week, I thought it might be useful in preparation of that series to try and answer the question of how do we pray? What are we doing when we pray? What are we doing when we engage the Lord in prayer? What is prayer? Uh, a moment ago when Emmeline read the scripture whereby we get the Lord's prayer, it was in using this prayer that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. In addition to that, furthermore, we can go into the Westminster Confession of Faith to see that the Shorter Catechism gives us a nice, tight definition of what prayer is. And Jacob's going to put up for us here on the screen this, this definition we get from the Westminster Confession. It says, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering of our desires unto God for the things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. So what we want to do here is we want to take this phrase or this, this answer one phrase at a time and really explore what each of these phrases mean. And what you may notice is that this definition sits in lockstep with Jesus' outline of the, war, of the Lord's Prayer uh, that we just read. Your kingdom come, your will be done is a petition for things agreeable to his sovereign will. 
forgive us our debts is a plea of confession and, and proclamation of dependence on his mercies. Praying for daily bread. It's not just a petition, but it's a thankful acknowledgement of his endless provision. So while it might seem like there's a lot to this definition of prayer, in many ways it's profoundly straightforward. So let's take a moment to explore some of these lines. And in the end, I believe it will help you in your prayer life. Uh, There's a repetitious pattern of sorts that we look through all the prayers of the Bible. and We see that these elements are inevitably included in most every prayer that you come across. So this first phrase, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. The scripture tells us in Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then Psalm 10:17 tells us, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Did you notice how these Psalms describe the action of prayer, pour out your heart before him. And uh, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Is there anything in particular that strikes you about those phrases, phrases like that? What impressions do those words make upon you? When we talk about heart and, and desire, we're being told to make petitions to God. In other words, we're, we're asking God for things. And generally, that's the component of prayer that we all get. Yes, I like asking God for things. God, I'm all about that. I, I would like a new car. I would like a raise. I would like my, my neighbor to be more neighborly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, but what we're talking about here is not just asking for things. God is not a genie. And I think you all are probably keenly aware of that. But, but what, what we are saying is that prayer is a matter of the heart. What do I mean by that? I mean it's not something mechanical, okay? Let's go back to my son begging not to have to go to school on Saturday. This wasn't just him performing a duty. It wasn't a mechanical request, right? Well, it's that time of day to ask my dad for something. Sometimes it does feel like this to me. Uh, it's that time of day for me to ask my dad for something. What will it be? Might as well be this. How about not to go to school on Saturday? How about that? No. Why was he asking? Why was he asking me what he was asking? Because his heart was grieved. His heart was grieved over the fact that he had to go to school on Saturday. It wasn't some, some random thing he was asking me. He was asking me something that was troubling his heart. And with this, you have to understand what the Westminster divines were getting at here. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, what were the Protestants protesting? Before the Reformation, in part, what was becoming of our faith? The leaders of the church at the time were, were turning the church into something mechanical. Here, buy this indulgence and you're good. Or, or just repeat this prayer and you'll be fine. Or, or what's required of you is to do this, that, and the other. And once you do those things, then you'll be good with God, right? You see, prayer, like our faith, is a matter of the heart. That's not to say it's something emotional. I'm not equating it with emotions, but what I am saying that it is something personal. God is interested in the desires of your heart as opposed to nice sounding prayers. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, Paul is telling us likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's not something mechanical. It's something personal. It's telling us the Spirit intercedes for you when you don't actually know what words to pray because He knows the words to pray, you see? The Spirit discerns what the heart is saying when we don't know the words. Telling God the right words is of no use to Him, dare I say it. Telling God's the, God the, the words you mean, now we're talking. And if we could liken it to our faith, having the right words isn't enough either. There, there needs to be meaning and understanding and faith behind the words. Matthew 7, 21 affirms this idea. Do you remember this passage? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's that telling us? Well, that passage is telling us a lot of things, but at the very least it's telling us having the right words isn't enough saying the right incantation at the right time is of no use. It's a heart issue. God looks at and considers the heart. So what is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires unto God. We pour out our hearts to him. There's nothing hidden from him, so we, we, we get personal with him. It's not something mechanical or ritualistic. You're opening your heart to the Lord. Now, having said all that, there's, there's more to our definition here, right? There's more to our definition. Having a request from the heart is the first thing that we see that defines what prayer is. But, but what's the next phrase say? Uh, what does it say? What is prayer? For the things agreeable to his will. There's the catch, right? That's the catch. So I can't just ask God for something from the heart. It has to be agreeable to his will too. I knew it was too good to be true. Now, this is not to say that we can only ask him of the things that are agreeable to his will, right? Let's go back to having to go to school on Saturday. Was it wrong for my son to say, Dad, could I please not go to school on Saturday? Was it wrong of him to ask that? Is there anything inherently wrong with him asking that? If, 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 if I wanted him to go, I thought it was the best thing for him to go, was it wrong for him to ask me to consider changing my mind? No, of course not. But his mother and I still did what we thought was right. It was best for him, even though he faced the atrocity of going to school on a Saturday. He was pleading with us to change our minds, yet we did it. When we pray, are we praying to change God's mind? When we read the Westminster Confession of Faith and when we read its catechisms, we're, we're reading a document that is not the Word of God. Instead, it's a tool that we use to, to expose the Word of God, to interpret the Word of God. And with every statement the Westminster Confession of Faith makes, you can rest assured that it gives us a footnote or several footnotes, footnotes to try and understand why it's making the statement it makes. And after this statement, where it reads, for things agreeable to His will, it gives us a footnote that points us in, in three different places, one of them being Matthew 26, 39. I wonder what that says. I'll tell you. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, he fell upon his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus was praying this, 
Was he praying to change God's mind? Have you ever wrestled with that idea? It sure sounds like it, doesn't it? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Do you think Jesus knew it wasn't going to be possible for this cup, the weight of all of our sin bearing down upon him on the cross? Do you think he knew it wasn't going to be possible to escape that? You and I, we're infected with Adam's sin. And what that means is sin has affected our total person. There isn't a part of us that isn't affected by Adam's sin. There's no part of us that isn't affected by it. And so even when we, even when we read the Bible, we, we approach the Bible with bias. And so we rely on the Holy Spirit to grant us the ability to approach the Scriptures, not reading what we want to read into it, but reading for what it actually says. Nevertheless, it's a battle. It's a battle for us. Our minds have been clouded by sin. And I say that not to make a comment on how we pray. I say it for another reason. Jesus was not infected by Adam's sin. And what that means is when he approached the scriptures, he saw them and read them with crystal clarity. See where I'm going with this? When Jesus read the scriptures, he never wondered, I wonder what my place in the world is. He knew why he was there. He knew he was the Lamb of God. There was no doubt about it in his mind. He was the sacrificial Lamb. He certainly knew this as he prayed it in the garden. So why did he pray? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because though he was fully God, he was also fully man. And in the garden, he still wrestled with his humanity, which means, which was telling him, his humanity was telling him, no, my heart's desire is to not have this pain and wrath inflicted upon me. He was dreading it. He was dreading it. I don't know about you, but I, I, uh, I hate needles. I hate them. Uh, I had a medical event some years ago, and, and uh, that requires me to be on medicine now. And, and uh, to keep my prescription active, I have to go to my doctor, and then they have to take blood tests pretty frequently, and, and uh, to have blood drawn from my arm. Okay, my annual visit is actually tomorrow. i got to do that tomorrow. That's all I'm thinking about. And there's that component of the checkup that I just dread. It's when it's time to draw the blood. And, I, and I've probably done this hundreds of times by now, but every time I go to sit in that chair, what's going through my head? Ah, I hope this doesn't hurt. And I look at the person drawing the blood. Have you done this before? Please tell me you've done this a lot of times before. And every, inevitably, it's, it's almost painless. But every time I dread it, I hate it. There's something very human about wanting to avoid pain. It's very human. This is what Jesus faced on a much, much, much greater scale. He wasn't getting a needle. He was getting the sum total of all of our sin placed upon him and the wrath of God that accompanied it. How human is it for Jesus to say, no, I wish I didn't have to do this. It's very human. But having said that, I only want what's in accordance with your will, Father. He was praying, Father, in this moment, I'm going to defer to your wisdom. Here's what my heart and, and, and all its humanity desires, but regardless, I will defer to your wisdom. If this must take place, it's because you work all things together for the good of those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. And that's what praying in accordance with God's will looks like. 
we express our heart's desire to him, it's a genuine, sincere prayer of the heart, yet we defer to his wisdom. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, if we only and ultimately are praying for God to just do his will, why do we even bother to pray? What's the point? If it won't affect the outcome, why do we pray? Well, I'm not ready to say it doesn't affect the outcome. That's too far. My son was begging me to change my mind about school on Saturday. Why? Because there was actually a chance I might change my mind. If to pray in accordance with God's will is praying for our heart's desire to him, but ultimately deferring to his will, in other words, not trying to change his mind, why in the world am I praying? The first thing we have to affirm is that God is eternal. He's infinite, eternal, and unchanging. What about you and I? Are, are we infinite, eternal, and unchanging? No, we're the exact opposite of that. We have a beginning. And as far as our context on this earth goes, we have an end. We are finite beings. This means you and I are limited by what? You and I are limited by time. We have the constraint of time bearing down upon us. We are constrained by it. time. Linear time is, not, is, is, a, is a constraint of finite beings. Infinite beings, or should I say God, is not constrained by time. Time is not a constraint of an infinite being. We can't put God on a linear timeline. That's a constraint. We can't put a constraint on a God that is contrary to, uh, we can't put a constraint on God that is contrary to his character. God is not impeded by time any more than he is confounded by knowledge. He is not confounded by knowledge because there's nothing he doesn't know. He knows all. He is not constrained by time. An infinite being is not constrained by time. Now, hold on to that thought for a second, and, and hopefully you'll see where I'm going with this. Does prayer change God's mind? Those things which God has decreed from all eternity, those things which he has set in stone, are just that. You can pray all you want for him to change those plans, and I promise you, he won't budge. God has an agenda. But remember, the end that he has decreed, the end that he has decreed, that which cannot be moved, he has decreed to bring about through specific means. He's not only decreed the ends, but he has decreed the means by which those ends will arrive. He uses things to bring about the things that he has decreed. So what do I mean by means? God has decreed to bring about things through certain circumstances. And your prayers are included amongst God's providential means, his providential circumstances. Let me explain it like this. Grass grows in your yard. At least I hope it does. It's been awfully hard lately because we have all this heat, right? But grass grows in your yard. How does it grow? Magically? No. There are means which act upon it and cause it to grow. Water must nourish it so it grows. Water, either from your sprinkler or the rain, either way, if it's going to grow, it needs water. Now, couldn't God just say, grass, grow? Yes. And wouldn't the grass grow? It absolutely would. It absolutely would. Simply because he stated it. He can make grass grow without water. By the power of his word, he can tell the grass will grow and it will grow with or without water. But is that what he's done? No, he's decreed that grass will grow by means of water and sunlight. Those are the agents he uses to grow grass. Now, let's just say I have a loved one who is sick. 
From before the foundation of the earth, the Lord decreed that my loved one would be sick. However, also before the foundation of the world, the Lord decreed that my loved one would be healed. What are the means that he uses to bring about that healing? What is the water to the grass that is healing? You have medical professionals. Medical professionals are among the means he uses to bring about that healing. What else? Medicine. He uses medicine among the means that he uses to bring about healing. What else? Prayer. Prayer is a means that he will use to bring about healing. From all eternity past, knowing that your loved one would be sick and knowing that he would heal them, God can and does decree one of the means that I will use to restore their health is prayer. The prayers of people will be one of the agents that I will use to bring about their good health. This is why it explicitly says in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, I've always loved the way it says it in the King James. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Your prayers are effectual. Your prayers do something. They are used to bring about the will of God. You ask, how can that be, though, if, if it's something that he's decided before the foundation of the world, his mind is already made up? Stop right there. Stop right there. What are you doing? You're trying to put a constraint of time on an infinite God. This is very mysterious, and it's difficult to wrap our brains around it, but he is infinite, and we are not. We are finite. God is not hampered by time. Our God transcends far beyond what time dictates to you and I. And if he so chooses to use a prayer as a, as, a, as a means of his infinite wisdom to bring about what is in accordance with his will, then so be it. And in the process, guess what? You and I are changed. You and I are changed. Our faith is strengthened. We are likened unto him. Here's what John Calvin said, and I'll paraphrase this a little bit. He says, what difference does prayer make? It's not like he's sleeping and then awakened by the sound of our voice. It's absurd, right? If that's what you believe, then you don't understand why the Lord taught us to pray. And he goes on to say, it was not so much for his sake as for ours. We pray as a part of our sanctification. We pray to be conformed to his likeness. To be made like him, so, so, so we can be made like him, not him like us. See that? Now, the next part of our definition is in the name of Christ. This is really important. What does it mean in the name of Christ? How many of you, when you pray, finish your prayer by saying in Jesus' name, amen? I dare say most of us do. What does that mean? To pray in Jesus' name means that we come to God and ask God in utter dependence upon the work of Jesus Christ. It means that we come to him consciously on the basis of what Christ has done for us. It's like, it's like we're saying, God, I'm asking you to hear my prayer, not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of the goodness of your son. If you've been to the uh, Old Hickory Boulevard campus, you'll notice that there are TV monitors that are uh, placed um, uh, throughout the building, mounted throughout the building. And, and during the service, you can see the live feed of what's going on in the sanctuary. But on other times, you know, not, when we're not uh, in the middle of the service, you have various announcements on those video screens. And then on occasion, there will appear a quote, you know, either from one of our pastors or, or some uh, uh, old theologian or something like that. Uh, now, there's something that I have repeated to my kids over the years, 
And uh, they've, I've repeated it so much, my kids have teased me and said, hey, maybe you can get that quote put up on rotation at Old Hickory Boulevard. Here's my quote. And I've repeated this a number of times to my kids. Remember that. You deserve nothing, Lee Eric Fesco. <laughs> That's the entire, wouldn't that be inspirational to see that on a, on a monitor there? Because of sin, because of our unrighteousness, we do not have right standing before God. We have no right to ask him for anything. However, because of Jesus, what he has done on your behalf, his righteousness is draped over you as a robe. Your right standing is based upon his righteousness. And based on that righteousness, you have access to the throne room of God. This is why we say in Jesus' name. It's like saying, by his righteousness, I ask these things. That's what gives you the right to ask God for anything. You deserve nothing. Jesus deserves everything. And we stand before God because of his right standing. In Jesus' name. That's what you mean when you say in Jesus' name. By his right standing, not, not by mine. Now, with that understanding, with that knowledge, and that, uh, this is what we have so far. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto, the God, unto God for the things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. Having just that much understanding of prayer, just that much understanding of what it is and what's happening, the proper response to knowing just that much is with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. One leads to the other. When the Lord reveals himself to us, when the Lord invites us in, it causes us to realize who we are before him. Think of Isaiah in the sixth chapter of, of, of Isaiah, his book. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what was his response? He called a curse down upon himself. Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He knew he deserved nothing. When the Lord reveals himself to you, it will move you to confess your sins. Again, not because he doesn't already know the sins you've committed, but it's an acknowledgement of our dependence upon him for forgiveness. Though you and I, you and I have been justified before the Father. Remember that robe of righteousness that I was talking about? Your right standing is based on that. You have it. You have right standing before God. Right now, those who believe you have right standing before God. So why do we confess? As long as you're on this side of heaven, you're, you're still going through the process of sanctification. You're still being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. You're still being made to be like him, more and more holy each and every day more and more like Jesus. With each passing day, your belief in Jesus, you die unto sin. This is what sanctification is. You die unto sin and live unto righteousness. More and more each and every day. So when we confess our sins, like we did earlier today, and Stacy did such a great job of setting this up for us, that, that's why we do what we do. We confess our sin and put to death the old person we were. We're mortifying our sin by refusing it, by starving it and rejecting it. And so how do you refuse, starve, and reject sin? It begins by confessing it. By saying, this is what I've done. 
It's not because now you, you have better uh, right standing with God now that you've confessed it. No, you're being likened unto Jesus. That's why you confess it, because you're mortifying sin, dying unto sin and living unto righteousness more and more each day before a God who's already accepted you. And when we understand this, and we are moved to repentance, all that's left is thankfulness. When our hearts are filled by the grace, we have no other response than thankfulness for all he's done. When we pray, we open up our hearts in adoration and petition before him. We ask. We pray for his will. We confess our sins. And we thank him for the mercy that he's given us in Christ. Almost every prayer in the Bible you'll find follows that pattern. And so as we come to this table, bring your prayers of thankfulness. Bring your hearts before him. Pray for his will. Come in his name with thankful acknowledgement of the body and blood that he gave for you so that your prayers and you have access to God the Father. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we, we thank you for your son who has given us the privilege and the right to do what we're doing right now, right this moment. Help us to be mindful of all that he's opened up for us whenever we pray. Help us to open our hearts and then conform those very hearts to your will. Help us to mortify our sin and make our hearts eternally grateful for the mercy you've given us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lear. Yeah, as you heard, prayer is an incredibly intimate thing. It's a relational thing. Uh, this table is the exact same. Uh, it's not a mechanical table. It's one that we describe in uh, circles that has been since it was set by Jesus as his body and blood. That's incredibly intimate, very relational. And it actually means that to approach this table, that you can't approach it just with uh, thinking, well, because I'm taking this table, that means I'm a Christian. Uh, that means I know him. We come to this table because he's actually already come to us, because he's already invited us. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't have questions or, 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 or go, God, do you really hear me in prayer? Do you, do you really know me and have those questions? That's okay. But it's that you go, Lord, I, I want to be reminded again of how much you do know me and love me. And, and, and that this body and blood doesn't warrant your relationship. It reminds you of it. In fact, it's called, like prayer, a means of grace. It's a means by which you, it's almost like a magnifying glass. It actually comes over your eyes to see Jesus larger and larger in your life. And that's what a means of grace is. That's what this table is. It, it's one that where you realize how known you are. We're about to read again from a confession together. This is what right do we have to dine at this table? We don't have any right. This isn't my table. This isn't Christ Pres' table. This is Jesus' table that he sets. And it's only through him that we can come enjoy it and then be reminded and be transformed by it and what he does in us. And be reminded to taste and see that God is good.